This is Kat Boren recording a podcast for the School of Surgery. I'm here with Roger Samworth, who's the clinical lead for diabetes and endocrine at the Royal Derby Hospital. We're going to cover um, calcium disorders in this podcast, which isn't traditionally a surgical um, topic, but comes up in all of our assessments and exams and is something we need to know about. So these podcasts are mapped to the IC General Surgery Curriculum 2016 for Endocrine Surgery. Good morning, Roger. Good morning. Um, I think I'd like to start off by talking about patients that maybe that come in on the acute take, um, maybe that are found to have an incidental high serum calcium when we do their routine blood tests. I was wondering what the main causes for that might be. Well, um, the commonest cause of high calcium is a primary hyperparathyroidism, um, and uh, the main test to initially look into a high calcium level would be a uh, parathyroid hormone level. Um, if you're dealing with a primary hyperparathyroidism or another parathyroid hormone um, related cause of hypercalcemia then you would expect a PTH that is uh, not low so it could either be in the normal range uh, or raised above the reference range. Uh, now um, the predominant causes of hypercalcemia with a low PTH are unfortunately um, generally malignant uh, and malignancy can cause hypercalcemia via a, a range of different mechanisms whether it be uh, bone metastases, um, tumour uh, release of uh, factors such as parathyroid hormone related peptide or 125 um, vitamin D um, and there's also a, a an association with haematological malignancies, um, to which to some extent ties into the previous causes, but uh, the, the exact mechanisms are, are, are slightly unclear. Uh, there are some rarer causes, such as granulomatous disease, such as um, uh, sarcoid or, or TB, particularly miliary TB, uh, and then beyond that you're onto onto rarities. So basically the, the main thing when someone comes in with a uh, a hypercalcemia is to get a PTH to see whether you're dealing with primary hyperparathyroidism, which is you know a benign condition which requires planning, or indeed a low PTH where you're looking at uh, urgent investigations for malignancy. Okay, so high calcium with a high PTH is primary hyperparathyroid disease, and high calcium with a low PTH is normally a malignant condition. Yes. Okay. Um, and so we'll get there. Are there any other causes um, of Thought some drugs perhaps that can cause. Yeah, so yeah, so there are um, uh, there are a, a number of medications that can be relevant. Now, most patients who are on a, a, a normal sort of calcium vitamin D supplement should have a calcium in the normal range. You occasionally see very slightly high levels in those patients without there being an underlying calcium uh, diagnosis. Uh, but if you do have someone on calcium and vitamin D supplements who has a significantly high calcium, then that in itself suggests a failure of kind of negative feedback control of, of calcium um, uh, homeostasis uh, and therefore does imply uh, an underlying pathology. Uh, thiazide diuretics are another cause of um, uh, mild hypercalcemia, uh, although I have seen a case where it uh, virtually met the 3 million moles uh, per litre mark. Um, and then certainly patients who are who are on active forms of vitamin D such as um, alpha-calcidol or calcitriol uh, for whatever reason um, can present with hypercalcemia uh, of almost any severity it can, can be very high uh, with those medications if they're not appropriately monitored and the dose is too high. Okay so we're mainly thinking about thiazide, I guess they'd be the most common ones that we'd see in the general population. 
Mm. Um, and should if somebody comes in with a high calcium on either a calcium supplement or a diuretic or on a vitamin D supplement, should we just stop those straight away? Or um, Often that's the right thing to do to... Uh, certainly if anybody who's on a calcium supplement needs to stop it if they come in with hypercalcemia and equally if they're on alpha-calcidol or calcitriol, that those needs to be reduced um, uh, down uh, as a matter of urgency or, or possibly stopped. It depends on the indication. Um, occasionally we might have patients who are on thiazide diuretics that if the hypercalcemia is mild, uh, there's no reason to change um, the treatment as long as you're confident that that is the cause and that you don't need to be investigating for other causes. If you want to investigate for other causes, sometimes you need to bring them off the thiazide to facilitate that. Um, from a um, from the point of view of vitamin D replacement, uh, thinking about primary hyperparathyroidism as a, you know, as I say, the commonest cause of hypercalcemia, we don't generally think that uh, vitamin D replacement affects calcium levels to a, a significant degree in these patients, and so it's usually the right thing to continue uh, treatment uh, on the basis that it's uh, a positive for bone health, which is under threat in this condition. Okay, so stop the calcium supplements if they've got high calcium that makes sense doesn't it and then maybe have a think about it if they're on the diuretics and the and the vitamin d's yeah okay um so apart from doing the serum biochemistry and looking at the calcium levels um what other and the, and the pth levels what other investigations might we want to get if someone's got a really high serum calcium on the ward um well it is uh, i mean a lot of patients with a very high calcium um may have fluid balance issues um they do essentially develop what is almost like a, a nephrogenic diabetes and syphilis type pattern. Uh, so they may then develop dehydration, um, acute kidney injury, um, hypernatremia uh, as part of that. Um, uh, you know, other routine investigations for, um, I mean, such as an ECG is important. You'd, you'd rarely see uh, cardiac arrhythmias and, and the like as, as, as part of hypercalcemia, but uh, obviously with the more severe cases, that's, that's important to exclude. Um, and then otherwise, really, your investigations will depend on whether you're going down the route of investigating a PTH-dependent hypercalcemia uh, or, or more the uh, causes with, with a low PTH. Okay. So, I mean, the textbooks always make it sound like people are going to go into their arrhythmias the minute you see them, but that's, that's unusual, is it? Absolutely, yeah. Um, I mean, it partly depends, like with all electrolyte disturbances, it, it partly depends on the rate of change. Mm -hmm. um, and I mean, certainly with patients with primary hyperparathyroidism who've been uh, you know typically those patients will have developed hypercalcemia over very many years and actually they can sometimes be incredibly well tolerant of it and even very severe levels of hypercalcemia can be a totally incidental finding um, I can think of patients uh, with calciums up to 3.5 millimoles per litre uh, where even on really quite um, direct questioning. You can't really pick out any symptoms and, you know, ECG is normal. There's obviously the physiology has, has compensated for that situation. Uh, and so often um, we might well put that patient forward for surgical management without necessarily correcting the cal calcium. Um, because they're asymptomatic. Because they're asymptomatic and tolerant to their current levels. Okay. And, and what kind of symptoms do you ask about commonly? So symptoms... Um, like with a lot of electrolyte and uh, um, like with a lot of electrolyte and hormone disturbances, the symptoms can be quite non-specific. Um, but uh, certainly, thirst and polyuria uh, is one cardinal symptom. Um, lethargy, drowsiness, abdominal pain, um, confusion, 
um, and then of course in very advanced cases um, you know loss of consciousness okay and it's then the moans bones groans yeah those things that we of, heard about in medical yeah, school absolutely I mean that, that holds true okay um, and presumably as an endocrine consultant you don't want us to call you about everybody that's got a calcium of like around three who do, do you want what should we be doing on the surgical wards ourselves and what um, and what do you think needs to be referred to you? Well, to be honest, I think um, if the patient has a PTH-dependent hypercalcemia, uh, as in the PTH is um, not suppressed and the calcium is, is raised, then you, know, you have diagnosed either primary hyperparathyroidism or a related condition. And we in endocrine would want to see these patients um, at least once. Um, now, in many cases, if they're asymptomatic, if the calcium isn't particularly severe, if there are no, if there's no evidence of kind of end organ damage or, or uh, damage to other um, physiological systems from the hypercalcemia, uh, then it may well be a case of conservative management. But even then, we'd often be in a position to offer um, long-term advice about... Uh, vitamin D management, um, uh, potentially treatments for osteoporosis, um, and, and that can be helpful in terms of long-term um, management in primary care. Um, but then equally, we're assessing for the indications for surgery, which um, include uh, kidney stones, osteoporosis, deteriorating renal function, and severity of calcium where adjusted calcium is greater than 0.25 above the top of the reference range, depending on your, your local um, range of calcium that's declared by the lab. Okay. So there's a quite a section of patients that we would offer intervention for. And, you know, the primary intervention for primary hyperparathyroidism is um, is a surgical procedure. So we'd then be referring them back to you. Okay. <laughs> uh, um, but, uh, I mean, the patients with a low um, uh, PTH and hypercalcemia, they do need uh, investigation for malignancy very promptly. And um, uh, obviously we, we wouldn't usually be best placed to undertake that. Uh, but if the results of that are negative and the cause of calcium remains unclear, uh, then we are, of course, happy to uh, help out at that stage. Okay. So we'll call you about the ones that have got high calcium with a high pth yeah um and then you can advise maybe on their long-term management if they're not if they're not symptomatic at the moment um and the ones with a uh, high calcium and a uh, low pth then we should investigate them for cancer yeah um and then let you know if we can't find anything yeah. um and how about the acute management of hypercalcemia so if we find somebody on the ward who is symptomatic with a calcium of 3.2 or 3.2 so the initial thing is very much around stopping medications which could be contributing but also um, uh, really rehydrating uh, so you're looking at around four litres a day of fluid intravenously and uh, can that typically. be any type of fluid or? Uh, yes yes uh, saline um, is it would be fine normal saline would be fine uh, and that would be our typical um, regime um, uh, now in patients who aren't settling down and continue to have severe hypercalcemia despite rehydration uh, then uh, acute use of intravenous bisphosphonates um, is the way forward uh, in most cases. Now, I suppose the proviso to that is that in the meantime, you're looking for the cause and, and, and there may be specific treatments, but in the absence of uh, any other specific action that's required, uh, if rehydration doesn't settle things down, then the up-to-date um, advice would be uh, intravenous sandronic acid, um, four milligrams as a stat dose. Uh, and the, the maximal effectiveness of that is within two to four days. Uh, so you're not necessarily going to see a massive change the day after, and that's 
you know, hang fire, you, you, you're okay. <laughs> uh, but, you know, um, o- over the next couple of days, you should see a significant reduction in calcium. Okay. So high calcium on the ward, um, if they're symptomatic, an ECG, rehydrate with normal saline, about four litres in 24 hours. And then I'm sure we'll be talking to you before this point, but IV is alendronic acid. Yeah. Um, after that. And, and, and the contraindicate, the main contraindication for IV is alendronic acid is uh, renal impairment. Uh, okay. So anything below an estimated GFR of around 40, uh, you start to be concerned about using treatment. Okay. Um, and then what could you do? I mean, does dialysis have a place in these patients it, if they've got high It calcium? can do. Um, so you, yeah, that, that certainly if there's a very severe case, uh, not uh, not settling with initial, initial hydration and you've got an AKI as well, then definitely involving the renal team is the way forward. Uh, there's also a um, medication, uh, denosumab, which can be used for um, acute treatment of hypercalcemia, although it's a, it's a newer medication. It is safe uh, for use in... Um, in patients with renal failure but to be fair look i think that patient would definitely need to be uh, considered for dialysis uh, managed by somebody other than the general surgeon absolutely yeah Yeah. maybe get them (laughs) off the general ward (laughs) (laughs) okay all right then so we've talked a bit about um how we investigate and manage both kind of maybe asymptomatic hypercalcemia and um, symptomatic hypercalcemia on the ward and then you said there are some indications when you see people in clinic and they've um uh, and they've been diagnosed with hypercalcemia um, and are being chronically managed. Is there indications for surgery in that group of, of patients? Yes, so the international uh, the international consensus um, really identifies um, the, the, the certain groups that uh, everyone would agree uh, are appropriate for, for surgery, um, and they are uh, patients with hypercalcemia uh, with a um, adjusted calcium uh, more than 0.25 millimoles per litre above the reference range. Uh, patients with osteoporosis, patients with kidney stones, um, and patients with deteriorating renal function um, whilst having the condition. I mean, the proviso and the problem with some of these indications, uh, particularly thinking about the osteoporosis, is that osteoporosis is defined as the amount of bone that's present compared to what's expected early in life and as patients get older um, there is an an expected reduction in bone density and more and more patients come into that osteoporotic range regardless of whether they have this condition so you've got to be slightly careful that you're not defining a population as requiring this uh, surgery purely on the basis of age which uh, you know it's kind of counterintuitive Uh, so I think with the um, osteoporosis side of things my practice would be that if they have accelerated bone loss uh, compared to expected for age on serial monitoring, that would be the main indication from the from the bone side. Okay, and what kind of imaging do you need to get any imaging before then, or well, do you in, tend to refer them over to the surgeons? And uh, I mean, certainly, the, the in terms of the, there is an important thing to mention with um, calcium that's associated with a non-suppressed PTH. Uh, there is a rarer uh, diagnosis, uh, familial hypocalciuric hypercalcemia, which is the genetic cause of hypercalcemia um, and, and the PTH will, will not be suppressed. It, so it, it biochemically initially looks like primary hyperparathyroidism. Uh, it's caused by uh, a genetic defect in the gene for the calcium sensing receptor. Um, and as you can imagine, a surgical procedure to remove one or more parathyroid glands is not necessarily the best treatment for that condition and it is usually managed conservatively. So from our point of view as endocrinologists, we are always very focused on avoiding a situation where we're referring that patient for surgery, putting them through the risk of surgery unnecessarily. So all patients that are going to have a parathyroid operation should be seen by endocrine first to 
fully confirm the diagnosis of primary hyperparathyroidism. Now, the need for scans of parathyroid glands in, uh, in terms of ultrasound and functional imaging, um, such as a, a Sestamibi scan, um, you know, that, that requirement is, is usually there uh, prior to surgery uh, for surgical planning, but is not a way of diagnosing primary hyperparathyroidism because you can have incidental um, adenomas on um, or, or close to a, a parathyroid or something that's mistakenly thought to be a parathyroid on a scan. So we make the diagnosis biochemically mm -hmm. and we try and be 100% clear about that before we refer to uh, a surgeon. Uh, and then surgically, the investigations of um, imaging the parathyroids are really for surgical planning because it affects whether the patient has a focused approach parathyroidectomy uh, or an open parathyroidectomy. Okay. And for the familial disease, is, is there anything clinically that makes you concerned? Do they, do they present a younger age or...? Yeah, so I mean, there's two. Uh, so with familial hypocalciuric hypercalcemia, they can present at any age because they come to light when people start to have calcium levels checked, which okay. of course often happens so in later life. So they're asymptomatic really? usually. Um, there are other familial uh, types of uh, condition that tie into primary hyperparathyroidism. So there are familial forms of primary hyperparathyroidism. Ism in uh, its own right, uh, but there's also multiple endocrine neoplasia, uh, type 1 and type 2, which are both associated with primary hyperparathyroidism. Um, and the indications that there may be something going on uh, that is a familial cause there, um, you're looking at a younger patient on average, uh, there may well be uh, gastrointestinal symptoms over and above what you would expect with the hypercalcemia, indicating maybe pancreatic or duodenal pathology. Um, uh, there may be other endocrine symptoms such as a lack of periods that could tie into a uh, sort of a pituitary diagnosis as part of an overall hormone condition uh, that's that's coexisting. So, um, and of course, there's potentially family history of mm. hypercalcemia um, and or other uh, uh, pancreatic or, or, or pituitary masses. Uh, so, so these are all things that should be asked uh, of any patient. Um, and, and the way, and the other th effect that that has on, e even if it, um, even if uh, there aren't any active hormone conditions uh, coexisting in a young patient, one has to wonder whether there's an underlying genetic diagnosis, and that makes it more likely that it's appropriate to have an open approach to parathyroidectomy because there's a bigger chance of parathyroid hyperplasia okay. rather than um, a single adenoma in okay. these sorts of cases, um, and therefore a surgical approach would be more appropriately open. Mm -hmm. Okay, I think we might leave MEN to one side for um, for a little bit and perhaps move on to um, the other side of calcium disorders, I suppose. So we've talked a lot about people that have got hypercalcemia, um, but we also find people on the wards, maybe post-operative patients, um, who have really low serum calcium. And is that is that something we need to worry about? What often causes that? Yeah, absolutely. I think probably the commonest uh, reason uh, of referral to um, endocrine for hypocalcemia is the context of a patient who's post-total uh, thyroidectomy. Mm -hmm. um, and typically, uh, we're talking day one or two post-surgically uh, uh, with a patient who may be symptomatic with uh, hypocalcemia, uh, or alternatively, it may have been the calcium is monitored and is falling uh, quickly and causing concern. Um, so, uh, I mean, context is important, and certainly if you've got a, uh, a patient who's had a thyroidectomy or parathyroidectomy, then that definitely comes into uh, interpreting the, the, uh, 
likelihood of of, like, uh, of causation mm. for the low calcium. There are lots of other causes of low calcium, but in that particular context, I would certainly be focusing on hypoparathyroidism and possibly um, with hyper hyperparathyroid patients who've had parathyroidectomy, hungry bone syndrome, which is a, a different cause of low calcium in this setting. Okay. Um, what, what are the other just briefly over the other causes? Um, well, uh, so um, the other the, one common cause uh, is uh, vitamin D deficiency. Uh, although one would rarely expect a, a severely low calcium uh, from vitamin D deficiency, you can often see a mildly reduced level between 2.0 and 2.2 millimoles per litre. You would expect with vitamin D deficiency to see a very high PTH level as part of a secondary hyperparathyroid response um, uh, and then obviously vitamin D uh, 25OH uh, vitamin D levels themselves would be uh, reduced when checked. Um, a similar situation occurs with uh, chronic uh, kidney disease uh, again causing a secondary hyperparathyroidism um, and again rarely associated with very severe hypocalcemia. Um, Perhaps an under-recognised cause is hypomagnesemia. So um, hypomagnesemia causes, to some extent, uh, a resistance to parathyroid hormone action, but probably the predominant mechanism is that it um, causes a reduction in parathyroid hormone um, secretion, um, and so the patient will be uh, typically uh, having a magnesium level less than 0.4, in my experience, um, if, if they're going to have this... Uh, extent of hypomagnesemia to cause hypocalcemia and you would expect a probably a, a parathyroid hormone within the normal reference range uh, and a calcium that can indeed be extremely low. I've seen cases down to 1.4 or 1.6 millimoles per litre in that setting. Mm -hmm. um, so those are, uh, uh, and, and then uh, in terms of longer term um, patients, there are patients with congenital um, abnormalities of uh, parathyroid hormone um, uh, release so basically congenital hypoparathyroidism there are a number of different forms of that which probably okay. don't need to be discussed at the moment okay um so in our kind of general surgery population we should think think about double checking when we're checking the calcium think about checking the vitamin d and the magnesium as well if we've got to know they've got a low calcium yeah okay um so for our post-operative um thyroid patients say so they've had a total thyroidectomy um, and day one post they've got really low calcium what do we need any other investigations do we need ECGs and that sort of thing as well um, ECGs are important in this context certainly um, you, you, you can uh, with with uh, because you're in a post-operative uh, situation where you've gone from a, a normal calcium to a low calcium very quickly your chance of um, symptoms is higher and your chance of uh, uh, ECG changes is higher as well. Mm -hmm. What kind of symptoms are they? Uh, typically, we're talking about neuromuscular symptoms. Uh, so we're talking really uh, tingling, um, uh, muscle spasm, uh, muscle twitching, um, um, and um, obviously, depending on on the uh, cardiovascular effects, maybe palpitations mm -hmm. or even collapse. And we heard about the chops checks and the Trousseau yeah. sign in medical yeah. scholars. Do you see those? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So those are, are the classic signs, again, based on demonstrating neuromuscular um, uh, excitability. Um, 
and with Chosex, um, that's a relatively sensitive but not very specific sign, so a lot of the normal population will potentially have a positive sign there. Uh, Drousseau's, uh, it's the other way around, not all patients with hypocalcemia would demonstrate that, but um, it, it's rarely seen in the normal population. Okay, and what kind of ECG things should we be worried about? In a um, well, the, the, I mean, obviously, if you do an ECG and there's already a, an arrhythmia, that's that's a big concern. But uh, the, the warning sign, the cardinal warning sign, really, is a prolonged QTC okay. uh, interval. So um, that's something that most automated machines will now report as a standard thing and, and can be... Um, can be assessed easily. Brilliant. Um, and so we've got a post-operative patient, we've done an ECG, we can't see any changes, but they have got some tingling. What kind of management should we instigate um, immediately? Well, Obviously, we'll speak to you guys on the phone about it, but maybe yeah. we should be getting some things underway. I think the really important thing with these patients, um, as a general principle, is to be getting in early with treatments that will help them uh, not to have the problem in the first place. And I think there's definitely a strong argument to be proactively checking PTH levels um, within, uh, with, certainly within 12 hours of surgery, uh, the exact timing, there's different protocols, but that then um, uh, potentially prompts uh, commencement of calcium and alpha-calcidol replacement therapy uh, prior to hypocalcemia developing, because once it has developed and once you've got symptoms, then the treatment becomes intravenous calcium. Mm -hmm. Now, we would say, certainly for peripheral use, the right form of intravenous calcium is, is calcium gluconate, and that can be given as an initial stat dose of, of um, 10 mils of 10%. And then it's often best, it depends on your local protocols, but it's often best to give some sort of infusion over the following hours, because otherwise you'll reassure yourself that you've improved the matters by taking a blood test after your um, stat dose, uh, but actually it'll very quickly fall away again. Now, if you... You, alongside that, it is important that you then start treatment that's going to to help in the following hours and days for this not to be a recurring theme. I think the frustration from our side is also always when we're getting called um, maybe the, the, the second or third time intravenous calcium has been given and uh, the oral treatments haven't yet been started because the oral treatments will take often a day or two to mm. really have an effect. So you really want to get those on board in a prompt way. Um, so yeah, I think so those you can are start this simultaneously. You can give some IV calcium. Yeah, absolutely. And some, yeah, some yeah. If, you, if if you've not started them before from monitoring the PTH, then certainly if if you find yourself giving IV calcium in this context, it's mandatory to be giving uh, oral calcium such as Sandical um, as a stat dose, and then for for example, uh, one thousand milligrams three times per day, and then. Uh, alpha-calcidol or calcitriol and if you're using alpha-calcidol I would either start 1 microgram or 1.5 micrograms as a stat dose and once a day and I would say any area that's managing thyroidectomy patients should ideally have these as stock items mm -hmm. on the ward so there's no pharmacy problems with, okay. with supply. And I've read about this somewhere that it can be dangerous to to replace calcium too quickly is that um, or not really. Well, you can certainly over-replace. I mean, I think the, the biggest concern we have with intravenous calcium is really the horrendous um, situation that can happen with um, extravasation. And we've had patients who've required plastic surgery for extravasation of IV calcium. So when you think about, if you think of it as an avoidable thing when it's mm -hmm. a predictable surgical complication and if you can proactively look for it and avoid it in, in, in at least some cases then you really start to see the importance of that. Uh, I mean it's, it's a bit different in um, in I, I, intensive care where they, I mean lots of patients with very severe acute illness have 
hypocalcemia and the intensivists uh, treat it quite straightforwardly with a central line and, and IV calcium mm -hmm. that's that's fine for them but uh, hypocalcemia with intravenous treatment on a uh, from a peripheral uh, line is, is is always to some extent risky so that's probably I'd say the main concern rather than over replacement or, or fast uh, reversal. Okay so we shouldn't worry about necessarily about giving too much or too quickly the calcium but we should make sure we've got yeah. big lines in, in uh, good Yeah ways. exactly and and I mean at the end of the day as long as you, you're giving a relatively small dose the intention is to give an, a, a relatively small dose um, immediately um, as I say 10 mils of, of 10% and often that will remove the symptoms and then you're giving an infusion over a few hours which mm -hmm. helps to maintain those levels with your and that should be well. yeah and that should be perfectly safe then usually brilliant that's been really great thank you very much we've um, talked about um, management and diagnosis and investigations for chronic um, and acute hypercalcemia and um, hypocalcemia today um, and it's been a brilliant for my revision and um, thank you very much Roger and we will see you again soon. Thank you Kat. Thank you for listening to another podcast brought to you by School of Surgery. Remember you can follow us on Facebook at School of Surgery, on iTunes, on Podomatic at schoolofsurgery.podomatic.com and finally by searching School of Surgery on YouTube. Thank you very much and see you next time.